Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. It's the great debate tonight. Thanks to Chris Gross and Roger Vise for recording it. The Sustainable Living Festival debate was about climate change. Will it force our economy to collapse or not? The speakers are David Holmgren, George Monbiot by Skype, Nicole Foss from New Zealand and George Marshall from the UK. I apologise to the other speakers who I had to edit out because of the time. As the climate crisis continues to unfold, so too does the polarisation of core strategy within the environment movement. At one end of the spectrum, we've got some environmentalists who are fuelled by a strong belief that speeding up an implosion of the global financial system is the only thing that can prevent catastrophic climate change. Not mentioning any names, Nicole Foss. Uh, and they emphasise a need to focus all efforts on building our resilience to survive in low-resource-dependent and localised economies. Counter to this position are others who remain firmly dedicated to building a mass global movement to achieve a full-scale emergency, wartime-like transition of our economy, working within the system. They anticipate the restoration of safe climate conditions by rapidly eliminating greenhouse gas pollution and actively cooling the planet through conversion of the current system. So smash the system, work within the system. There are two poles. To collapse or not to collapse, they're the things we're considering tonight. So, so obviously, we are in an urgent situation. No one in this room needs to be you know, given any of the, uh, the list of reasons why. Um, and, and these kinds of urgent times create radical responses. So we're running very low on time. We know we're in the decade for change. In fact, we're halfway through it. Uh, have we run out of time for half measures? And what will it take? to rescue the climate. So let's get stuck into it. Our first speaker tonight is David Holmgren. You'll know David as uh, he's an environmental designer and educator and writer, but you'll know him as one of the co-founders or co-originators of the permaculture concept. Thank you. It's great to, to be here for this debate, even though, of course, I, as an anarchist, question uh, this uh, simple dichotomy. Uh, the word collapse is very interesting because my work in framing the future as being one of energy descent specifically rejects the idea 
that civilization is actually going to fall off a cliff. But actually what is inevitable, no matter what any of us or anyone on the planet does individually or collectively, humanity is headed for a future where there's a continuous reduction in the energy and resources available to each generation for many, many generations into the future. And that is the framework within which permaculture 40 years ago, reflecting the evidence of the limits to growth, was framed. Now, of course, in a steady state world, that sweet scenario in the limits to growth that showed that if we did all those things back then, maybe it was possible for the world to move out onto that plateau of some sort of steady state system. But it did involve this massive uh, transition, restructuring our financial system so they no longer depended on perpetual growth. Uh, this huge conversion, dealing with the population issues, dealing with the inequity issues and the geopolitical crises which suck up most of the world's uh, resources resolving the war against nature, the war between the tribes and the war between the genders, all simultaneously these ancient conflicts. That future to me over the decades has seemed less and less likely and that energy descent in some form or another is inevitable. Within that context, permaculture shifts from being some sort of uh, alternative lifestyle choice to being, at least in principle, if not in detail, the pattern of that energy descent world. And the great positive thing about that is that we've been through a long culture of continuous change where every generation had to do something completely different from the previous one. And we take into that future that culture of change. It seems fairly evident to me that the underlying energetic and biological basis of life is the big driver in these futures and that that pulls away this idea that we have from uh, the Enlightenment and our culture of progress of human agency, that we are the masters of our own destiny. Of course, this can be critiqued as a biological determinism and Permaculture does have that other side of the focus on, yes, what we can do in ourselves is the great option we have. When I met Bill Mollison in 1974, I was walking away from the radical political activism which I'd grown up in, of trying to stop the world we didn't want, to we're just going to go out and create the world we do want. Okay, I was 19, I was not interested in all of those uh, arguments about the structural inequities of the world and limitations. No, we're just going to go and do it. I met Mollison, who had actually come to the same point after five years of intensive environmental activism. And permaculture has always been about that, that we'll just create the world we do want for ourselves, if for no one else. Of course, to the politicos, this is sort of abandoning the really important issues of society. Uh, and it's not doing anything that actually will change anything. 
I believe that the way the billion or so middle class people live and what they choose is the biggest leverage point that exists in the world. And that it is possible for relatively small numbers of that billion or so middle class people to actually have an influence on the system by what they choose to do. So by building that resilience, we're engaged in an enlightened self-interest. We then provide a model, many, many different models, because it looks different in every situation. Out of those models, other people have the capacity to copy that. They may, they may not. But at least they can do it without the permission of government, without the permission of the banks and the corporations, because we are mostly talking about small-scale change in our own lives. And then as that builds some sort of constituency, it may not be very big, but it has that enormous advantage that it works as a systemic strike against the system which is destroying the planet. Because when we grow our own food and disintermediate that massive chain from the large commercial growers to uh, the supermarket, we are actually taking money out of the centres of power and relocating it uh, down into building that resilience. When we support other uh, local uh, small business, when we do things for ourselves and restart the household and community economies, the non-monetary economies, which have always been the basis of every society, whereas the monetary economy has been the icing on the cake. When we rebuild that, we actually gain political strength. Rather than just shouting louder for those at the top to pull the levers of power in some completely different way to hopefully produce some different outcome to what they have been producing. If we are completely dependent virtually for the air we breathe on this massive centralised complex system, then we have actually no political power. When we come from a position of some degree of autonomy, we have much greater power. Now, whether that's enough to re-engage with a system that appears to be sending us straight over the cliff against all the scientific evidence remains to be seen. Maybe it doesn't, but I think it has a lot better chance of trying, than trying to build a majority movement shouting for less. I don't think that has any possibility of success. So the self-reliance strategy may also, I've suggested, act as a systemic strike on the system. And only because that system is so ridiculously vulnerable, not primarily right now because of peak oil and climate change, the, the two big long-term drivers, but because of the bubble economics, where it requires constant growth to push the debt tsunami ahead of us before it completely swamps us. It appears that debt tsunami is about to swamp us in some way or another. It was a few years ago. The problem hasn't gone away. 
So the system is right now in the process of unravelling. That is our greatest chance of actually being saved from the climate cooker because it is now very late in the piece. The idea that we are going to all get together and get some global agreement and then those global agreements actually lead to action which doesn't lead to the Jevons paradox of the activity just being recycled back into all the same problems seems highly unlikely. So the advice is to build your own self-reliance for enlightened self-interest and then maybe others might copy that and then maybe that might build a constituency that could actually leverage change and maybe it might contribute to an actual collapse of the global financial system. And that may be the only thing that saves us from the climate cooker. It's never been my motivation that we need to smash that system. In fact, I'm appealing to alienated uh, activists who are seeing the hopelessness of the situation moving off into two different directions. One is, please give us a command economy and save us from this terrible future because that's one of the solutions that's shaping up. And the other, of course, is the Unibomber solution. We must somehow uh, smash the system with violence and it's obvious where that leads. So come over and join us at the cool resilience end of the spectrum where we're having more fun anyway and maybe it might uh, save us from the climate cooker, who knows. Um, and George Monbiot, welcome to Australia, welcome to the um, Sustainable Living Festival, welcome to the great debate. The, uh, to, to collapse or not to collapse, which way should we go ahead? You've got 10 minutes and your time starts now. Welcome George, please. Well, I, I come from the British adversarial tradition, which um, is a very competitive one and one where you're schooled to win. But I don't particularly want to win this debate. And this puts me in a strange position, and you're probably not going to be too pleased about uh, too, too, too pleased with me for doing this, because actually, I think we're all lost in this. Um, the more I think about these issues, the clearer it becomes to me that none of us has got a viable answer to the questions which are being put on the table today, an answer that actually works. And it seems to me that winning or losing this debate is less important than trying to work ourselves through an extraordinarily difficult problem. So while I'm going to do my best to suggest that actually collapse is a, uh, an even bigger disaster than not collapse, um, I, for once in my life, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to try to press this to the line and persuade you that this is the only way of looking at things because neither position really seems in the long run to hold water. But let's start by looking for a moment at what collapse means. The, the first thing we have to do is to ask ourselves, well, how might it come about? Um, it was supposed to be delivered by peak oil. Well, that prospect appears to be receding quite rapidly, as do the other mineral crunches. I mean, one of the terrifying things about our extraordinary exploitative ability is that 
even if the environmental cost is humongous, we always manage to find a way of, of, of extracting more resources from fragile and remote parts of the world. They might be less concentrated than before. There might be far higher energy costs required to get them out of the ground, but we'll still do it. And we'll still do it even when there's an energy return on energy invested of about 1.1. We will keep digging and we will keep getting this stuff out of the ground, even if it's disgusting, gloopy bitumen and tar sands. Um, we, we will keep extracting just to try to keep this show on the road until there's almost nothing left except us. Um, and then there won't be that many of us left uh, beyond that point. So it's not going to come about suddenly. It's not going to come about quickly, um, even if collapse is going to come. It's going to come about through a very long and drawn out and, and really bitter and unpleasant process. Um, so... Uh, given that capitalism has always proved adept at finding new reserves or, or substitutes for what's being depleted, um, and given that we're likely to destroy almost everything on Earth before we completely destroy ourselves, we're, we might individually not be very resilient, but as a species we're highly resilient, what then um, do, do, do we have as the alternative? Well, of course, you know, the, the idea of... of leaving it all behind um, and, and, um, and, and re-establishing ourselves as entirely autonomous, small communities without the need of a state, without the need of, of interconnectedness at the national level or the global level. In some ways, that's attractive. In other ways, I find it a terrifying vision. And one of the things that becomes clear throughout world history is that whenever collapse takes place, psychopaths take over. You can see it today, in, uh, well, recently in Afghanistan, for, uh, to, to give one instance. You can see it among the Maras of the broken communities of Honduras. You can, you can see it um, among the oligarchs in Russia. Uh, yes, you might object, the psychopaths are already in charge, and I suppose that objection carries a certain amount of water, but actually you ain't seen nothing yet. In, in collapsed societies, um, at least for, for, for a period, um, People, people fill the gap who have a peculiarly effective adaptation to do so. And I wonder if um, psychopathy, which affects about 1% of the population, might actually have um, an adaptive function, that it permits um, um, those people in certain circumstances to take over and to govern and to um, uh, crush everybody around them um, when the, the restraining um, influences of, of a bigger political system have been released. It's not in any way to endorse the way our system runs at the moment, and I think those of you in Australia would um, have some justification for saying, um, the psychopaths take over, how's that going to be different to, to, to where we are today? <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but it can be an awful lot worse. So having then made this sort of great involuntary descent, this huge great bump, or even perhaps a voluntary one, <clears throat> there are still things which are, are difficult to resolve, even if we manage to um, escape from um, the, 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 the clutches of um, those people who don't share our views and do have all the automatic weapons. Um, one of them is, is how we maintain even the barest rudiments of what people consider to be 
a civilized life. So in other words, a health system, um, um, some basic infrastructure. Uh, th these things are very difficult indeed in a situation where um, economic, complete economic collapse has taken place. We see plenty of people talking about living off grid, and I have to say that many of those people, um, actually their off grid um, existence is, is highly dependent on diesel generators. But even if you manage to live entirely off grid without diesel generators, how do we um, sustain even the most basic manufacturing industry? How do you make things which I think all of us would regard as essentials in one way or another, metal tools and utensils, for example, textiles, glass, spectacles for people like me. How, how do you do this with, with an off-grid economy? How do you do this without any concentrated sources of energy? Um, well, you know, even beer, you're going to need, need, need a little bit of um, warmth to make good beer. So, well, perhaps we could dispense with that. <laughs> but it's, it's, you know, we're talking about um, even very tiny basic manufacturers. If you try to do it, for instance, with charcoal alone, um, as, 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 as off-grid communities might conceive themselves as doing, you're talking about an awful lot of forest. And, you know, this is a problem that we will keep coming back with destructive technologies. Um, in Africa, for example, in East Africa, I've seen how when supplies of paraffin or kerosene are disrupted, people don't give up cooking, they cut down more trees. Um, and we, we are... We don't disinvent what's in our heads. We will keep coming back, even if we've lost almost everything, with, um, with, with, with more destructive uh, assaults on, on the natural world. It doesn't bring the problem to an end. But for all that, and for all the caveats and difficulties I have with the idea of collapse, what does not collapsing mean? Well, whichever low-carbon technology we might embrace to try to uh, mitigate the impacts of having 7 billion people all wanting to be connected and to have manufactured goods in this world. All we're doing so for the current system is providing new means by which that system can continue to grow. New means by which infinite growth on a finite planet continues. And when you look at it this way, you'll see that collapse and salvation don't seem to be all that far apart. Um, the, Jeremy Grantham, an investment banker, did this calculation saying, let's imagine that in 3030 BC, 3030 BC, the total possessions of the people of Egypt filled one cubic meter. And let's propose that these possessions grew by 4.5% a year. How big would the stash have been by the Battle of Actium in 30 BC? And um, so, you know, you can guess, well, 10 times the size of the pyramids, there's all the sand in the Sahara, the Atlantic Ocean, volume of the planet. The answer is 2.5 billion billion solar systems. That's just with 4.5% growth over 3,000 years. 4.5% is roughly the uh, level of global growth at the moment. So even if you were to try to dematerialize the economy to the maximum possible extent, to replace fossil fuels um, with, with, with low carbon emitters, um, to, to, to manufacture in, in the most economically and environmentally efficient way possible, it is still completely impossible to sustain this growth. And not collapsing, 
which means at the moment carrying on more or less how we are, uh, that is, is, is as catastrophic as collapsing because it is one and the same thing. Salvation and collapse in, in the system that we live under at the moment are two sides of the same coin. None of us has yet produced a convincing account of how humanity can get out of this mess and none of our solutions appear to me sufficiently to break the atomizing and planet wrecking project. So it's not just um, uh, that we, we, you know, we, we, of course, we must try to move to a steady state economy, but it's very hard to reconcile that with the ever escalating demand for, for more consumption driven by marketing and advertising and all the rest of it, which appears to be an inherent feature of the system under which we live. Perhaps not just the capitalist system, but the fossil fuel system. The fossil fuels, they are the meta system. Capitalism and communism and the rest of it. Okay, I'm about to get out of this. Um, th those, those, are, th those are subsets of the fossil fuel driven uh, growth ideology under which you live, which is far deeper than just a, a particular decision about how the economy should work. So, so the best we can hope for is a hard-headed and realistic assessment of the problems we face and an attempt to get through without resorting to ideological fixations. Those who believe in growth or green steady state and those who advocate collapse are often too rigid in their thinking because actually, you know, both sides, we were all a bit at sea in this, all a bit lost. And I'd like to pose, and I hope this doesn't offend the organisers too much because I know I'm really not supposed to do this, <laughs> You abstain from the vote. There's actually a lot of truth on both sides and a lot of wrong-headedness on both sides. I think there's no clear distinction between collapse and survival. And this is not the time to throats out. This is the time to sit back and reflect and to pool our wisdom and expertise. Cut and that sky blink right now. He's gone well over 10 minutes. If you've just tuned in, this is the Beyond Zero Emissions Show. We're listening to the great debate from this year's Sustainable Living Festival. Now, someone who's definitely going to play within the rules of smashing the damn system is our third speaker, Nicole Foss. Nicole is the co-editor of The Automatic Earth, the economic limit to growth that she sees as obviously the most pressing one. And um, I, have, I was telling her before that um, we were a group of us who um, were, were looking at buying a place to uh, live at our old age together, a sweet little motel somewhere, were listening to background briefing one night and Nicole Foss came on and was saying basically, I mean it was a lot bigger than this, but she was basically saying, don't buy property anywhere, okay, now. So that was the take-home message that we got and I'm sure she will uh, leave you convinced not to buy property or anything else either in the next 10 minutes when she paints a very dark picture, hopefully with some outcomes for us. So join me in welcoming Nicole Foss as our third speaker for God knows what side. I'm essentially going to argue that there's no point in thinking in terms of large scale and top down because it isn't going to work anyway. We've lived through an era of incredible expansion. The era of globalization was when we reached out spatially to pick the pockets of the entire world, when we reached forward by borrowing money to pick the pockets of our children and grandchildren and future generations as well. We've created this enormous bubble economy. Bubbles don't continue forever. They reach a natural limit and then that is the end of it. There's no option as to whether we collapse or not. We're going to collapse, like it or not. 
So what we have to do is say, what does that look like? And what kind of solutions are viable? And not to waste our time focusing on things that we know are not going to work anyway. So I'm going to demolish the case for the top-down large-scale solutions, essentially. First, we're facing financial instability, much larger than 2008. Again, no choice whatsoever. We kick the can down the road as far as we can. We're almost out of road, and the consequences are going to manifest themselves fairly soon. So we're playing a giant game of musical chairs in financial terms. There's one chair for every 100 people playing the game. When the music stops, the people who understand the rules of the game, which are not most of us, are going to grab a chair. The rest of us will be out of the game. We have a crisis of under-collateralization. This much underlying real wealth, this many loans, we are not going to keep all the promises that we've made in financial terms. When we fail to keep those promises, then we're going to see financial assets collapse in value, physical assets collapse in value over a slightly longer time. So we're moving into an era of absolutely acute financial crisis. So if you're going to propose solutions, they can't cost any money. So if your solution is expensive, it's not going to work. In a time of economic contraction, the trust horizon contracts as well. Trust determines effective organizational scale. As the trust horizon draws in, this is going to leave national and international institutions as stranded assets from a trust perspective. If your, your solution relies on, on trust being maintained in large-scale institutions, it's not going to work because things that do not enjoy trust are no longer effective. We're also looking at energy contraction. So energy production is flat to falling globally. Energy profit ratios are falling as well. That is an, a recipe for a tremendous energy crunch. So you can't say that energy returned on energy invested is, is irrelevant, that we'll keep digging it up uh, no matter what anyway. We'll only do that if you can make money at it. So the unconventional energy systems have been a giant Ponzi scheme making money flipping leases, land leases, for unconventional energy production. This has not been a question of making any money on the energy itself. It's been just another real estate bubble. Again, it's almost over. Now, unconventional oil and gas can in no way substitute for what conventional oil and gas at a high energy profit ratio have given us. So they are simply not comparable things. You want a graphic uh, description as to how they're different? Well, conventional oil and gas is like saying you're thirsty. You go up to the bar and you order another beer. You sit there and drink it comfortably. Unconventional oil and gas is what you do when the bar is closed and you can't do that anymore. Just how desperate are you for your next fix? Are you desperate enough to suck spilled beer out of the carpet? Because that's what unconventional oil and gas amounts to. It is not a comparable thing at all. You're going to get a mouthful of dirt. You will put a huge amount of effort in for almost no return, and it will not in any way substitute for what you can no longer have. Now, it's not just unconventional oil and gas that have this problem of low energy profit ratios. It's almost every other alternative that we propose to conventional oil and gas. Now, basically, that means if your solution is energy intensive, that won't work either because we are going to be facing extreme uh, energy contraction over the next few years. When production is flat to falling and the energy profit ratio is falling, there is no choice but to use less energy. Every society rests on a certain minimum energy profit ratio to maintain its current level of complexity. We built our society on high energy profit ratio energy sources. When we no longer have those, our society will be forced to simplify. 
Now, the paradox with low energy profit ratio energy sources is they cannot sustain a level of complexity necessary to produce them. Simplified societies do not frack, they do not drill horizontally, they don't produce concrete and rebar and photovoltaics and wind turbines. So a whole lot of things that we currently look at as the energy future won't even give us the energy to maintain what we've built. So again, if your solution rests on complexity, it's not going to work. Those four things are the absolute death knell of top-down, very large-scale, complex, war-footing transformations. So there really is no way that that's going to be a, any kind of solution. We're going to contract and simplify, like it or not. So we just have to deal with the consequences. And when people talk about trying to get transformations going, the problem with putting the argument in climate terms is it's not personal, it's not immediate, and if it's not personal and immediate, people will ignore it. It's not motivating for, for significant amounts of change. Move into an era of instability, the discount rate will go through the roof, people will stop caring about anything much beyond next week if they don't have enough to eat and drink and they're cold and they're penniless. So when your discount rate is high, you no longer have the luxury of the longer term view. So we're moving into an unstable uh, era. Now, some people say, well, to make climate motivating, we should just generate a lot of fear and see what uh, that does for us. Well, think about what that might do for us. What would the big players do if they really got to be in their bonnet about climate change? Well, there's carbon trading Ponzi schemes, generate lots of profit for the few, generate more emissions in the process. There's massive mitigation and adaptation. Again, you know, $6 billion tidal barrage around New York City more emissions, more profits for the few. Industrial scale carbon sequestration, you know, capture all the CO2 from a power plant and stuff it down an oil well to improve their recovery. Again, same story. Geoengineering, let's have a blunt instrument that messes with something we don't understand. And again, we generate massive risks. Somebody will profit from this. It's not gonna be most of us. So we're looking at things that are profoundly counterproductive. They're all generating profits for the few, costs for the many, and more emissions. So they're in no way a solution to the problem. Another possibility might be ecofascism, for instance, which is just fascism with a greenwash. It's all about depriving ordinary people of as much as possible so you can concentrate the ownership and control of the remaining resources in the hands of the very few. Push the middle class off the back of the bus and then just move into an extremely elitist, even more unequal system. So this, this is not going to be any kind of solution either. But if, if we allow people to say, well, we must have, have a command and control system to save the climate, well, unfortunately, control mechanisms are energy intensive. That means more emissions, plus all the unpleasant uh, impacts of living under such a system. Or there's, let's tear down industrial civilization because it's destructive. So let's destroy things to avoid destructiveness, which doesn't make any sense. So if you look at things like deep green resistance, well, it's how about we blow up dams so that we, we prevent uh, the kind of impacts that we, we tear down the ability of industrial civilization to function. Well, it'll be the poor people who couldn't get out of the way who suffer. It's not going to be the elites. It's not going to have the effect that people are actually looking for. It's in no way a solution to the problem. So given that all the things that are most likely to happen if we actually suddenly became truly afraid of climate change, every one of them is negative, then my solution, as counterintuitive as it sounds like, is the best way to deal with climate is to never talk about it. So I never do, except for today. 
so I frame all my arguments in terms of financial crisis and peak oil. They're personal, they're motivating. People will change their lives if they feel that there are things that they can do that are going to avoid impacts. Coincidentally, all the things that they would be motivated to do are the very things you'd want them to do for the sake of climate change anyway. But frame the argument in different terms and they'll actually do it. So that's my approach, to look at the shorter term, more personal immediate limits to growth and frame the arguments in, in those terms, knowing the side effect will be a benefit to the climate. What we need is a small-scale adaptive response, absolutely along the lines of what uh, David was talking about, building grassroots resilience, because it's the only thing that might actually work. If effective organizational scale is going to be drastically smaller, that is the scale we must work at if we're going to, to truly be effective. So we need to look at climate change being addressed by a combination of economic collapse, which is completely inevitable anyway, and whatever we can motivate people to do to build resilience. It may or may not be enough, but it's the only option that we have on the table, so we might as well do it. There's no need to try and force economic collapse. It's going to happen all by itself. And the problem if you try and, and force it is you just get to be called the next generation of domestic terrorists and then all the environmental initiatives that have the effect of undermining the economic system end up being outlawed. So never declare yourself as being someone who's trying to destroy the economic system or you will be blamed for its inevitable demise. So I tend to regard it as saying, well, of course, everything to do with building resilience and independence is going to undermine the system, but don't make it a stated goal. Have your stated goals be all the things that are entirely defensible building a better world and saving the environment and, and creating resilience. These are all perfectly noble goals. Of course, it's a side effect that it will help crash the economic system, but because that was going down anyway, then there's really nothing to worry about in, in that regard. Just there's a huge difference between stating something as a goal and having it as a, as a side effect that you just don't really talk about very much. So I really think we absolutely have to go for permaculture. We have to go for grassroots resilience. We have to build interconnectedness. We have to work at the kind of organizational scale that can hope to be effective. We're simply going to have to live through a period of collapse, like it or not, so we might as well look at choosing those solutions that are most likely to actually be effective in getting us through the crunch period and then allowing us to reboot the system. We're crashing the operating system. We need to reboot that into something that looks less like a planet-killing Ponzi scheme. If you've just tuned in, this is the Beyond Zero Emissions Show. We're listening to the great debate from this year's Sustainable Living Festival. Join me in welcoming our final speaker for the evening, George Marshall. Everybody, please. Hello. Hello. Can you please, just for a few seconds, shake the hand of a person next to you and just say hello. Hello. Good. That feels good, doesn't it? I mean, after all of his time just sitting, having these pontificating talking heads, literally, like my friend George, literally a talking head, <laughs> up on a screen, like the Wizard of Oz, talking at you, isn't it good to feel the connection of people? And for me, the biggest challenge for climate change is how do we find the language and the narratives that bring us together how do we find ways of combining people, finding the things that we share, the things that we all care about, but can bring us together? Um, with respect to Nicole, it's, 
I think the solution to climate change is talking about it the whole bloody time. I want climate change to be constantly part of people's lives and engagement in the conversations that they have. And for me, the biggest disaster by far is the failure to talk about it, the silence, the divisions, the especially the split between people of different political values. I'm left-wing, and I'm an environmentalist, and I'm proud of being part of that movement. But for me, the greatest challenge at the moment and the greatest need is to engage people from across the political spectrum. Not that we agree, I want them to be talking about it in their way, finding their values and their approaches, but I want them involved and engaged. Because having looked now at why we ignore climate change, the single greatest reason we ignore it is because it does not speak to our values and who we are and what we care about. And we're in a catastrophic situation, but large numbers of people have simply disappeared from the conversation altogether. Not even that they deny it, although plenty of them do, but they're not engaging with it at all. So, I guess when I look at this issue collapse, that's, these are the criteria I apply for it. Is it something which helps us with that challenge of bringing people together, of having a shared sense of value, or is it something which contributes to that disaster of kind of pulling, pulling people apart? Hold that thought for a moment. Um, you know, wo words are very powerful. Words are powerful. I, I come from Wales, the land of Heriath and Bodlon. Bodlon, I always say Bodlon, it sounds like Mr. Bean, Bodlon. And you wouldn't necessarily have any reason for knowing what those things are, because those are very specific Welsh words, talking about identity, the yearning for home, and the sense of identity and simplicity in your own community. And just as similarly, if any of you went to Wales and started talking about, I don't know, true blue, dinky dye, <laughs> dinky dye, Aussie ochre, I wouldn't expect them to think of anything either, because you would be speaking to things which are coming from your own identity. So, when I look at collapse, when I look at any form of narratives or language, because communications is my business, I ask, what is that saying about the people who, who are promoting it, who are using it? Because actually, in truth, when you're listening to us talk, you're probably not really following the arguments. What you're doing is you're listening for these individual little beacons, these signals that say, oh, I agree with that, I agree with that. That's someone like me. I like what they're saying. I like their style. What does collapse say? Well, for me, I have to say collapse, and the language of collapse is the worst side of the kind of nihilistic destructiveness of my own social movements. Um, both on the left, but also on environmentalism. It's not, it, we are emotionally drawn towards collapse. We yearn for it. It's, it's, part of our, it's part of our founding narrative. We're immensely biased when it comes to thinking and talking about this. We're drawn to it like moths to a flame. And I can't help but feel that there's more to it than, we, you know, one of the things I've found in writing my book is that people construct arguments, they bring in the evidence to support the position which they hold emotionally. We're not that rational as people. There's immense confirmation bias. And I think for environmentalists, we have immense confirmation bias towards the concept of collapse. You know, we've been talking about it for so long. I'm starting to get old enough now that I feel I'm on the third cycle of conversation about this imminent collapse, which is going to happen at any moment. You know, this, um, this point of overreach, this point where we go over the cliff, and I've been waiting a long time for it. I spent a lot of time listening to people about peak oil, waiting for that collapse to come. And a lot of time with my friends going on about Y2K, waiting for that collapse to come. You know, and, and, of course, previous generations waiting for the imminent collapse when the contradictions of capitalism would come to the fore. And clearly this whole thing would collapse. It's like, 
I'm not listening to any advice that our side has to make on this subject, because I think the system, as George said, is far, far more resilient than we ever give it credit for. But I also worry that when we talk about collapse, it's actually a means by which it's a kind of self-therapy. It's a way that we project our anxiety onto the issue. Thank you, five minutes. The, it's almost like a kind of a, a, a talking cure. But, we, but collapse is a kind of scratching post under which we, we, we express our own fear and anxiety by somehow externalizing it into a, a negative narrative of, of self-destructiveness. And I think actually, in a way, it's even worse than that. I'm deeply concerned that narratives of collapse are a kind of preparation for the death and destruction of others. You know, when people talk about collapse, it's somehow strangely never themselves who are going to collapse. It's never their friends, their family, their communities. I feel very deeply disturbed to hear people in some of the most privileged societies on earth talking about, about the collapse because they don't seem to have a vision of this being something affecting their own lives. You know, if you go on the internet, there's a fascinating rant by George Carlin, the comedian, in which he says, save the earth, you've got to be joking. The earth's just going to shake us off like a, like a, a, a dead-end evolutionary mistake, like a, just a bunch of fleas. Who are these fleas which are getting shaken off? This is a kind of, this is a preparation for the death of others, the first step towards the collapse of other people's lives is we accept the possibility of it. And personally, I refuse to accept that. George Carlin's rant, incidentally, three, thank you, three million people have watched that. That's a, that's a lot of people who are feeding into that. Believe me, that's a growing social meme. But you know what, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe it's right. Maybe, maybe that collapse is imminent. Now, I don't doubt that we're facing major crisis. And I'm not going to pretend that capitalism is going to save us. I haven't got a lot of confidence in that. I've got a nuance as well, right? Maybe we're right. You know what? Well, the, the boy who cried wolf was kind of right too. You know? It's like we forget that in the Aesop's fable. Like, the boy who cried wolf was right. The wolves were there. He said, the wolves are coming. And he was right, the wolves were coming. And he said, the wolves are coming, and the wolves were coming. And then they ate all the sheep, and he was right. And you know what? No one did anything because they didn't trust him. They didn't trust what he was saying. They didn't trust who he was. They didn't trust the messenger. So I go back to that point again. Is it language or narrative which brings us together? Is it language which draws us apart? And it's not even about whether it's right or not. The question is whether it is something which is going to be coherent and speak to people and who they are and bring them together. Even if it is right, and I, I echo in, in this for what we've heard from other people, I'm not convinced that ecological collapse, that, that, sorry, that, that, that economic collapse is in any interest of the environment or in any way a better landing. And one point which hasn't been made so far is, you know, when humans get anxious, when humans get close to the edge, they immediately resort to conflict. And we've heard so, so far about like the permaculturists with guns. I have to say, there's a lot of very, very powerful weapons sitting in silos around the world. I have a deep concern with climate change, but climate change is an issue without an enemy. We are all, in a way, contributing to it. And when you have an issue without an enemy, which creates anxiety, people seek enemies to fill that gap. And I'm deeply concerned that we will find the enemies to fill the gap. This is a time more than any when we need to be holding together. And I guess so, this is, in a way, what I, what I would be saying. I don't want to talk about collapse. 
even if collapses on the card. I want to talk about the qualities that hold us together, the qualities we have in common. Because, you know, humans are great. Most of my best friends are humans. <laughs> or pretending to be. We have so much. We have so much in common. We are amazing. We are powerful. We are brilliant. We are creative. Sometimes we're damn stupid. We're destructive. We're a lot of mixed things. Let's speak to those positive qualities of what we share, of what we share, of what brings us together, of what we're capable of. In Australia, let us speak to the qualities of standing together, of, I realize it's gender biased, of, of mateship, of being together in the face of adversity, of giving it a go. Surely these are the qualities which speak across those boundaries and can bring people together. Thank you. Uh, yeah, we, we heard um, David Holmberg uh, talk about uh, eco-anarchism. Uh, we heard uh, Philip Sutton talk about what I would call ecological uh, modernization, which uh, I don't think is going to cut it. Uh, Jess, let me direct my question to you, uh, because you mentioned uh, Cuba and Venezuela and I believe Bolivia, uh, but there's another option, and uh, I would call it democratic eco-socialism, that involves public ownership of the means of production. We hear a lot about privatization, maybe we should revisit public ownership. Social justice, social parity, social equity, democratic processes, <coughs> environmental sustainability, and a safe climate. And your question so, for Jesse? So is, is, is that what you're driving at, uh, or are you on a different page? Thank you. I think we need to build a new kind of economy, that that economy has to be democratically built, and it has to be democratically built to meet the needs of people collectively. Uh, I, I, that can be called eco-socialism, it could be called, you said democratic eco-socialism, I think it's incredibly important to say that this has to be democratic, but I think maybe just because the word democratic is used incredibly different in, differently in different contexts, I don't think that means people simply vote for what they need. I think the only way we transform society is that people are actively engaged in creating a society that meets all of our needs. Well, human nature hasn't fundamentally changed since the Paleolithic. Um, this is for probably George or George, but any of the others. Do you, do you accept that... Um, progress is possible in the sense that the philosopher John Gray has argued. And Essentially, boom and bust cycles are an emergent property of civilizational scale. Once you reach the scale of civilization, we move through these periods of expansion and contraction. We think of it as the rise and fall of empire, but there's very much an economic component too. We blow financial bubbles. We occasionally take leave of our senses, like the tulip mania in Holland in the 1630s, the South Sea bubble in the 1720s. We just do this again and again and again, and we never learn and we never will. So all we can really do is we can look at the system and say, you, you can't change the waves, but you can learn to surf. So you can look at where you are in that giant cycle that's so much bigger than you are, or any, any government, any central bank, or anything else, you can look at where you are in that cycle that we can't control as human beings, but, but identifying where you are in it allows you to behave accordingly. So it allows you to look ahead at what comes next, be proactive and position yourself for it, not just as an individual, but as a society. 
So what I try to encourage people to do is to say, based on the lessons of history, human beings are terrible at learning the lessons of history, but it's a really good idea to learn them and apply them proactively. Based on the lessons of history, what we're moving into is the bust phase that follows the 30-year boom that we've just had. That looks like an economic depression, not just because people are stupid, but because that's simply what the bust phase always looks like. And we can, we can prepare in advance by increasing resilience, by working at an effective, very much smaller scale, by building community and connection at that scale, and that allows us to put a floor under how deep collapse has to go. You can keep more people in a constructive headspace by being proactive, and then the impact is less. It's, it's a huge question, and it deserves a lot, of, a lot of answers, but the only one that I'll give, really, is that one of the, one of the core qualities of us in, in terms of how we're set up is concerning the psychology of our identification with our social group. And that's why, at the very beginning, I said I feel that the real opportunity and the challenge is about whether we can bring people together or whether we pull people apart. If people have an identification with a wider group of humanity in terms of a collective effort, I think we can move forward. If we okay. split up into it competing interest and peer groups, then we will split apart. Yeah. Could I say I, something on this? Okay, sorry, yes, um, we had the next... Oh, sorry, yes, George. Mm. Oh, sorry. You're still there. Good. Yes. <laughs> Please. Um, but, but the reason I want to come from this is that I feel it cuts to the heart of, of, what, um, of what the question should be. And this is, if a collapse takes place, will our impacts on the living world be more benign or less benign than they are at present. Uh, and, of course, you would expect them. It would be very difficult for them to be less benign. But I'm not so sure. Um, uh, what we see throughout um, the existence of human beings and even homonyms going back two million years is that whenever we have broken into new lands, we have wiped out all the megafauna and a great deal of the mesofauna which takes place there. In fact, you can date the arrival of human beings much more accurately by the disappearance of large animals than you can by the artifacts that human beings leave behind, because the artifacts are very thick and scattered, whereas you see this sudden break in the fossil record where you previously had these incredibly rich, dense megafaunas living at the continental scale, suddenly, boom, they're gone. It happened in Australia, happened in the Americas, happened in Madagascar, happened in Europe, happened throughout Asia, it's happened wherever we have gone, we have done that. We have wiped out almost everything. We, we're now doing it in the seas at an extraordinary rate as well. So there is an inherent quality to human beings, which means we are at odds with the um, protection of the natural world. We will destroy the natural world when we encounter it, unless we consciously... With, with wisdom, engage with what we are doing and try consciously to limit our impacts. And some societies around the world have succeeded in doing that. Um, unfortunately, in the historical record, they're pretty few and far between. They exist, but not nearly um, with the frequency that many people would like to believe. So what I'm saying is that our belief, uh, that many people I think in the audience hold, that if we can just get rid of the capitalist system or get rid of the fossil fuel system or get rid of the um, usury system or, or a particular aspect of what we do, and if that thing collapses, then everything will be well after that and we will find a harmony with nature that we don't have at present, 
I believe that, that belief is misplaced. Uh, in your book, Heat, you stated that uh, in it that you believe that when the crunch comes, we will look like a very, very poor third world country. Uh, can you give us your comments on how you feel about it now, please? Um, thanks. I was actually reporting the answer given by Mayor Hillman to the question of what would a 90% cut in carbon emissions look like. That wasn't my answer at all. In fact, that was the launch point for my book, saying this is not something that people will accept. So could we do it without ending up looking like a very poor third world country? And my answer was, yes, we could. It doesn't answer all the questions by any means. We could do it <coughs> within an economy of our current size. We could reduce carbon emissions by 90% and we could have a perfectly decent life. It wouldn't um, have any real impact on what I think most of us would regard as our quality of life, though it might have some impact on our quantity of life um, in terms of the amount of stuff we can consume. Well, we, we, we can live without most of that. Um, what, what it doesn't address... And, and what is seemingly, to my mind, impossible to address, because there are mathematical and physical constraints upon this, is um, trying to maintain carbon emissions at that 10% of current production, which is where we need to be, uh, in a situation of ongoing economic growth. Those two aims are incompatible. And it seems that the only way of producing anything resembling a sustainable um, cohabitation with a livable planet and with a livable atmosphere is to move to a steady state economy rather than econ an economy which depends for its very survival upon continued growth. A gro under a growth-based economy, there is no difference between collapse and survival because the survival of that economy necessarily leads to collapse. It might happen sooner, it might happen later. It takes us there without any shadow of a doubt eventually. There has to be, whatever you believe, whether you want collapse to take place or you don't want collapse to take place, if you have any concern for either humans or for the natural world, there has to be a transition towards a steady state. That seems to me to be the fundamental prerequisite. And in a way, that's why I want you to abstain from the vote, because actually that thing lives somewhere in between. It lives in between business and, as usual and collapse. The steady state economy, I think, is the only hope for humankind and for the planet that, that we inhabit. Thank you for listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions show. We brought you the great debate from the Sustainable Living Festival. Thanks to Chris Gross and Roger Vise for recording and to Jane and the team for production. My name is Vivian Langford. Join us again next Monday at 5pm.